Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode 65. Whoa. Before we get into the episode proper, something very exciting. We dropped a daddy deep dive today as of this recording. We sat down with our good buddy Devin, chatted about one of our favorite movies, The Silence of the Lambs. So that is streaming now. It was a really great conversation about a movie we we all have a lot of near and dear feelings about. And yeah, check it out. Daddy Deep Dive. Science of the Labs. Let's get into the movies that we watched this week. Six macaroonies? Yep. Ooh, so many macaroonies. Okay. We started with a mystery movie pick for me. And I picked the 1987 drama slash family film. Is that correct? <laughs> That's what IMDb says. I'm not sure I agree, but... <laughs> it makes it sound real light, but this had some heft. Um, I don't think I would have enjoyed this as a child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we watched Where's the Friend's House? Uh, it was directed and written by Abbas Kiristami, and it stars Babak Ahmed Poor as Ahmed, and Ahmed Ahmed Poor as Muhammad Rita uh, Namadzaz... Namet Zadeh. Um, and those are kind of like our core two people. We kind of run into a bunch of characters along the way. And I'm going to do a really bad job pronouncing all of them. So I'll just leave them off for now. Because uh, I, I don't want to embarrass myself and those people. <laughs> um, synopsis. Eight-year-old Ahmed has mistakenly taken his friend Muhammad's notebook. He wants to return it or else his friend will be expelled from school. The boy determinately sets out to find Muhammad's home in the neighboring village. So this is our first Kirstami. We were going to go see, oh, what's it called? Taste of Cherry. Taste of Cherry, which is a renowned movie of his. Of his. And this is also the first in what's known as his Coker trilogy. Coker being the, the town that this is set in. Yeah. I, I, I saw the, 
I was really taken with the synopsis of this film and I know that it was highly regarded. So I'm like, oh, yeah, let's give it a try. Let's throw this on. What do you think of Where's the Friend's House? Um, I was a little judgy when it first played How because so? it started, it's st- like the thing that came up on the screen was something about like the Institute for Children's Development and it looked old. It looked crusty. Like <laughs> crusty. I was like, what weird ass thing are you making me watch? <laughs> um, no, you never really finished your story about, you said we were going to go see taste of cherry in the theater and then you stopped there. Um, so I think we just, we ended up not being able to go, but what I knew about taste of cherry, I think it's a very different film content wise, like what the plot is about mm. than this. Um, and I just didn't really know about a lot about Kiristami before watching this. So I'm a little ashamed at myself because, you know, it was Sunday or Monday night and this came on and it looked old and it looked slow. And I was like, ah, I'm not in the mood for this. And then it was everything. <laughs> yes. This is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen in my life. What was it about it that made it one of your favorite movies? It's got that slice of life thing going on that I love so much. And Kiristami is part of that slow cinema movement, which I think I'm understanding more and more that that's, if we can look at cinema on a scale of slow to fast, the more it tends to slow, the more I'm going to like it. And as it crosses the line into fast, it's more likely that I'm going to watch that once, think it was fine and be done with it. Yeah. That's a that's a really good way of putting that and a really good reflection because I I feel like it's a struggle that's ongoing with me because I I think that I do like faster films and I'm more likely to revisit faster films than you are. If yeah, if, if I've seen them that. once, I'm usually done with them. Yeah, and like, usually please never make me watch Mission Impossible again. I'll watch it on my own. <laughs> um, but I feel like slower cinema is a bit of a tougher sell for me even though those are the films i tend to give more five out of fives to and even within that there are days where i'm just not up for it because it's so this is that thing where time is so subjective because even though objectively there's 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour two 90 minute films can feel like a totally different time experience depending on how the filmmaker is playing with time. Now this is, if Kiristami is part of the slow cinema movement, this didn't feel all that slow to me. No. Like it, it's not fast. It's soft. Mm. Although it starts really upsetting. Like the opening scene is really upsetting. And um, a lot of it has to do with the cruelty of a elementary school teacher. And as a teacher myself, I, I really struggle just across the board with depictions of school, you know, like whether it's that would never happen in a school or, you know, I, I cannot with a teacher and a student romance. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't care if it's in book smart and the student is 19. It's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's incredibly painful watching something like in this film and knowing that that's still happening in schools where teachers exercise their power in such thoughtless ways mm-hmm. because it's one of the most intense parts of being a teacher is that 
a comment I might make flippantly because I'm annoyed by something that happened that has nothing to do with the class I'm currently teaching can impact a human being for the rest of their life in a way that I don't understand. Yeah. And vice versa, right? A comment that I make flippantly can influence them in a really positive way. And I don't even understand the impact I've had on them. And this seems like a teacher who doesn't give a shit about that. Oh yeah. There's no self-reflection or thought given whenever he is saying the things that he's saying to these students. I mean, when I was in grade one, just quick tangent, like I, one of the rules was that we had gym right after recess. So we had to be quiet before the teacher would take us to the gym. So we had to be, uh, we had, we had to get our shit together coming right out of recess, which is tough to do because you're riding the high of recess. And, uh, I came into the classroom and I thought the teacher wasn't there. And I said, everyone shut up so we can go to gym. And I yelled it to the entire room and the teacher was bent down behind her desk, picking something up. And she, and she like whipped upright and was, and, and looked me dead in the eyes and was like, excuse me. I felt so much shame. And I still, I will never forget that. It's so vivid in my, in my mind palace. <laughs> and it's so, that's so sad. And also kind of funny from this vantage point, not from that vantage point, because you were trying to get the your classmates to do what the teacher wanted, mm-hmm. right? Like it was in service of that. And I think this film does such a great job of setting our empathy in the opening scene yes. for the children. Um, and then that character of Ahmed being this like balm throughout the film of like the antidote to that kind of cruelty. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Ahmed and how great of a protagonist he is. And Just like one of the all-time greats. Yeah. I mean, talking about that scene, I mean, first of all, I'm heartbroken for his bud, Muhammad, when yeah. he starts crying. Because it's just, like that, that kid is obliterated. Yeah. But like you see, like just the when we focus back on Ahmed's face, such a great child actor face. He's yeah. able to portray so much. It's akin to what we talked about with the um, uh, the lead protagonist in Come and See. Yeah, they feel like very not intentionally paired films. One that speaks to how kindness can exist within a cruel world and the other being come and see about how it can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the world is just cruel and will break you down. Yeah, no matter who you are. And I think both things are true. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think we need our cynical moments and we need our positive moments and being all one or all the other can be a dangerous thing mm-hmm. in life. Um, we'll talk about cynicism again later. But yeah, the use of close-ups on Ahmed, the character of Ahmed's face, particularly a lot of this film is we know what he wants. We know what he's thinking. As the synopsis says, he accidentally takes his friend's notebook and he just wants to get it back to him. That's the whole thing. That's that's the plot of the movie. And so much of it is like a close-up on his face as he's trying to explain to adults why this matters to him so much and nobody is listening. And it, what's so brilliant about that is that Ahmed and Karistami do such a great job of pulling you into Ahmed's point of view, mm. therefore making you feel like a child that it will that is not listened to. Yeah, and that I, is a shit feeling. And I feel like that it, that is such a core memory for all of us as kids of not being heard or misunderstood when you're yeah. younger. And I think even if you're 
blessedly lucky enough to grow up in a household that really tries not to do that, like through your parents and your family and and their close friends, um, it's going to happen somewhere. Whether it's a teacher or a sports instructor or, you know, somebody, some adult somewhere is going to not listen to you and make you feel so small. Oh, yeah. And I feel like, I mean, speaking for ourselves, like I feel like you and I, to different degrees, really struggle and it is really hard on us when we're misunderstood. Yes. And it stems from the same kind of spot as Ahmed, right? From being little and and through different experiences. Yeah. Having that be the 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 main way that our lives function. <laughs> yes. But the amount of care and concern in the character of Ahmed about I need to get this back so that my I don't even know if they're like buds. I don't even know if they're friends, but this is a classmate of his that could potentially get expelled. And he's like, that can't happen. This is a hero's journey. (laughs) It is a hero's journey. And it's, you know, it's so interesting. We talk about this a lot on the show. But when you go and watch something, it's not brand new. It's in 1987. It's an Iranian film. And you go, wow, Wes Anderson is grifting off of Kirstami. Totally. (laughs) And you're like, oh, this, this filmmaker who so many people revere whose reels are all over, like TikTok reels are all about like making your day like Wes Anderson. This is doing it better and less pretentiously and less, less hyper stylistically. Um, I'm being kind of, kind of mean and cynical here because I, I didn't look into whether Wes Anderson has spoken about Kiristami being an influence on him. Um, but there is so much style in a way that I think a lot of like precocious style that, that I like, I'm not going to say I don't, um, is, is in this as well. And so if you like films like that, you should like a film like this. Totally. Like there was one moment, there's a music cue that repeats a few times throughout <laughs> yeah. this. It feels like such slam dunk Wes Anderson yeah. music. And it just, it, there's like this playful sense of adventure that it kind of evokes in me in terms of its vibe and its feeling because so many things that I was reading after watching this say that this is essentially just a fairy tale journey in reality well yeah and so it's interesting we watched um we watched this on Criterion Channel and there was a very short interview about it with Michael Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he talked about that that this feels like magical realism in a sense so that it's grounded in reality, but has these moments that feel whimsical. And I don't know that I would call it magical realism, but it's playing in that territory for sure. Like, yeah, like just, it has this familiar beats of, yeah, like a never ending story or something like that, where our hero is on this journey and he's meeting different people along the way. But this is much more grounded in reality. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, And then yeah, yeah. unlike, even though we can see the, this um, cinematic, connection from he, from Kiristami to Wes Anderson and of course a lot of other people this doesn't go whimsy over theme mm-hmm. the way Wes Anderson I think does where it's more about the style and it's more about the experience than it is about the thematics mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of emotional heft to this that I've never felt in a Wes Anderson film yeah I, I totally agree I think like 
I think the closest, I'm just trying to think now, not that this really matters, but I feel like the closest to like an emotional punch that I've gotten from a Wes Anderson movie is maybe Isle of Dogs. Yeah, a little bit in the Royal Tenenbaums too. Yeah. I'm not, and I'm not like discounting Wes Anderson and saying that No, I still enjoy, like yeah. we, I think we still enjoy the spectacle of watching a yeah. Wes Anderson movie. But to see that kind of style harnessed for this like very clear thematic point, which is more where I lean in my art in general. Yes. I'm like, I'm wanting a emotional thematic experience that I can then connect with and reflect on. And, and that might change based on the different times that I watch it and, and enable really interesting conversations with me and people that I watch it with or that watch it without me. And this film just seems to be fundamentally about that coexistence of cruelty and kindness in our world and asking the viewer which side do you want to be on? Yeah. It, it's And it's done so well through these little vignettes of other characters throughout Ahmed's journey. And it's highlighting these different beliefs or these different values that people have, that adults have specifically um, about the world and how people should function within it and the things that people should adhere to. And I think there's also uh, a cultural element to it too, it being Iranian and what the values of being raised in Iran could mean. And in a small village, right? Like, yeah, you know, we, the next movie we're going to watch is also set in, in a country that isn't ours. Mm -hmm. And a key part of that movie is talking about like moving to the big city. Mm -hmm. So to say that it's not the whole country, yeah, but it's the politics and dynamics of this particular subset of this country. Yeah. Right? I think we're familiar with that too. I mean, we did the same thing in our own way in North America, how we moved to the quote unquote big, big city, city yeah. out of a smaller suburb off of the big city and the, the cultural dynamics between Even the two though there's are a different 20 minute drive between the two different. They're places. very different places. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so I think, I think that's an interesting um, part of this as well. And I, I think that now being excited to see more of Kirstami's work, I think that he is looking at different aspects of his experience as an Iranian mm -hmm. um, through the different movies. Because what I know of Taste of Cherry is it seems like it's a lot darker mm. than this. But I just, I can't wait to watch more. This movie ended and the final shot, just like I immediately burst into tears. It's the, the ending hit me right in the feels this week our smackaroonies this week i have to say it's the week of banger endings yeah oh i'm just i'm going going through the, all of them yeah the three of our six movies have some of my favorite actually and there was the fourth one that you really liked has some of my favorite endings i've ever seen in film um but this was amazing this just like five out of five i will watch it so many more times in my life and I can't wait to watch the the rest of his filmography. I 100% agree. Highly, highly encourage you all to check it check it out. Whereas the Friends House is truly a cinematic gift. How did it make you feel? It made me feel hope for humanity in this cruel, unjust world. Mm. How did it make you feel? Heartworn by Ahmed's kindness and determination. This is one of those movies that when you're feeling pretty hopeless. Maybe put this one on. Hell yeah. Real nice. Okay. Let's go to the next one. So there's a movie that I had taken out from the library a really long time ago. Actually, I think I've taken it out twice. 
Um, oh, really? And this was my, you can, uh, the Edmonton Public Library, you can renew something twice, up to two times if nobody else is in line for it, which means that you can have it out for a total of nine weeks and we are approaching the final days <laughs> of my final renewal. Um, so I was like, I really got to watch this. So it wasn't so thoughtful of a pick as like, I don't want to have to take this out again. It's not on any streaming sites. I do want to watch The it. library doesn't send you reminders that are like, uh, are you going to watch this or what? <laughs> it does send a, like, a three-day reminder. Um, so I picked the 2015 drama Mustang. It was directed by Denise Gamze Ergvin and written by Alice Winokur um, and Ergvin. They co-wrote it. It stars... A lot of people, um, I'm going to name the five sisters. So, Guinness Sensoy as Lale, uh, Doga Zanep Daguslu as Nur, Elite Iskan as Isi, Iliada Akdogan as Sone, um, Tugba Sunguroglu as Selma, and then the grandmother is played by Nihal G. Koldas. Synopsis for this one, when five orphan girls are seen innocently playing with boys on a beach, their scandalized conservative guardians can find them while forced marriages are arranged. And I'll say in anticipation of us talking about this, um, I think we both liked this movie a lot, but it was a really hard watch. And it would be one that, um, depending on who you are and, and the types of things that you do or do not want to see on film, you might want to look up some content before you watch it. Yes. Very family. What did you think of Mustang? Uh, I knew absolutely nothing about this film. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a tough watch. That said though, watching the dynamic between the sisters was very compelling. Yeah. I thought that the actresses all did an amazing job and seeing just the, I felt like they nailed sibling dynamics while also navigating just the really horrible kind of situation that some of them are, well, that they, that they're all in. Um, but yeah, th this, this was really, this was really impactful. What do you think? So I actually also didn't know that much about it. Um, I sometimes will just based on, having heard good things about a film or like lots of people that I follow on Letterboxd who I have similar tastes in or have, have rated something highly, I'll just add it to my watch list and then I won't even remember what it's about. Mm -hmm. This I, I got from a list um, that's called, if you like this American film, watch this international film. And I like the ethos of that list being like diversify what you're watching. Yeah. Uh, but I forgot what, American film it was paired with I was and ask. for some reason I, I kept thinking that this was I thought it was a queer film which it's not um, and I thought it was kind of like a now and then type film which it's not um, so the film that it's paired with is Virgin Suicides mm -hmm. and that is also not a particularly light film mm -hmm. I haven't seen that in a really long time but mm -hmm. I have seen it I have read the book this movie is incredibly intense and dark um and it has been critiqued as being like reductive of it's set in Turkey, mm -hmm. um, reductive of like Turkish culture. I think we are not the people to speak on that. Yeah. Um, but I take, I take this film not as a representation of Turkey, but as a re representation of this family. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that story being told could be told in America as well. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I don't say that to be reductive, but a version of that story and some of the things that it's exploring, I think, could exist across many different cultures and geographies. Um, While I think there are some specifics to uh, Denise uh, Gamze Ergovin, she is Turkish, Mm -hmm. and I think um, there's some specificity there to that. I don't see this as like a representation of Turkey. In fact, it was interesting because After Sun is also set in Turkey mm-hmm. in a very different way, right? It's about yeah. these um, Scottish folks coming to vacation in Turkey. Yeah. And yet the um, the opening scenes of Mustang really evoked After Sun for me. I'm like, oh, you can, having never been to Turkey, I can see the landscape was very well depicted in After Sun because I'm getting After Sun vibes here. Very different movies. Yes, <laughs> very different movies. Um, this was funny to me because you picked a film that made me cry a lot, mm-hmm. but it didn't make you cry as much. Yeah. And then I picked a film that made you cry a lot, but didn't make me cry as much because you said that the ending of this film had those tears flowing. Yeah. Uh, this is the second in the series of films that we watched this week that have an absolutely incredible ending. But holy shit the 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 whole last act leading up to where the where the film eventually ends i i the welling started the heart started pumping but when we got to that last scene and like the and what what happens in the very last moments of this film i was just like holy shit like i think that it was just this sense of all of this buildup that i mentioned just kind of coming to a release point and it uh and it doesn't necessarily wrap things up in a nice bow like there's still a sense of mystery and what will happen next and what and yeah and like what's to come but it's done really effectively i mean it affected me <laughs> cuz yeah i just had to sit there for a bit cuz it was it was it was really 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 well done i think the as dark as the film is it doesn't um it's not come and see <laughs> to be our reference point of the week. This film, though, does um, seems to suggest to me, and again, I think it's not specific to Turkish experience. I think this is very universal, that gender is a fucking prison mm-hmm. and marriage is a fucking prison. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows that both literally, like there is so much imagery of gates mm. and walls and um, something separating somebody else. Um, and then also just through what's happening, mm-hmm. um, highly agree with those two points that gender and marriage are prisons, um, which I guess you can willingly enter if you'd like. Sometimes yeah. you're unwillingly put into the prison of both. Um, some people love marriage. I appreciate their attempts to make a prison beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding. I, I uh, support your right to choose to get married. Yeah, do you do you? Uh, we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't do it, but, but, but if you if you want to, yeah, for sure. Not for us, but for yourself. Some interesting um, things about this movie. So the the co writers, so Ergovin, who directed the film, and then uh, Winokur, who she co-wrote it with. They met at Cannes at a um, event for beginner filmmakers, and they were the only two women who were at that event. Holy fuck. 
and uh, Ergovin was trying to get financing for a larger project and wasn't successful. So Winokur was just like, do something smaller so that you can prove to these fuckos, my words, not hers, um, that you can make a film. And then they just made this together. I love that so much. Yeah, it's really great. That's awesome. Also, I love this story. So there was a composer, I didn't write down his name, that is bad of me, um, who originally declined to to do the composing um, due to a busy schedule. Uh, but he changed his mind after Ergovin, the director, had a baby and came right back to filming with the baby on her lap or to editing the film with the baby on her lap. And he said, it just shows how pathetic we are as guys. And then he decided to compose the film. <laughs> Man, I'm a chump. <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> Look at her. Yeah. Oh, so, I'm tired. But I do think, I mean, I, I'm not supporting hustle culture of like, I have to do this even after I just had a baby. But if she, if that was something that she wanted to do. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, the film itself, the opening scene and the opening experience happened to her. Mm. Um, there's a scene that happens in, in water and then a reaction to it. And that happened to her. I think the rest of the film not, mm. um, but it is coming from a personal place to start with. Interesting. So would you say that it is like kind of semi-autobiographical and that it didn't happen necessarily, but there's elements of it that she's pulling from experience? Yeah, I think in uh, After Sunway and then the last film we we watched this week, I think similarly, Mm -hmm. there's a emotional core to this that's true. This feels a little bit more fictional than some of those other ones, I think. Yeah. Um, But starting from that place. Interesting. Also, uh, fun fact. Mm -hmm. So this was her first feature film. She has an upcoming film called The End of Getting Lost, and it will be starring Margaret Qualley and Paul Meskel. Sweet woo. Yeah, that is a good pairing. Yeah. My favorite TV show, Leftovers, starring Margaret Qualley. My favorite movie, Afterson, starring Paul Meskel. So I'm looking forward to this. And uh, maybe... Between the two of them? Yeah. I have no idea. Uh, Adam, they might be siblings, so forget They it. do feel like they could play siblings. Yeah. Uh, that's great, though. I'm yeah, here for it. Me too. That's funny too. The connection. Turkey, Paul Mescal, after sun in Turkey. <laughs> How did Mustang make you feel? Uh, emotionally obliterated. Favorite thing to say. Obliterated? No, emotionally obliterated. It's a it's a real good catch all for being wrecked. <laughs> that's that's essentially what it means. Wrecked me. How to make you feel? Just heavy, heavy, heavy. It's a really heavy film. So the way that Where's the Friend is a good one to put on when you're feeling hopeless and need some light, uh, this is not. Yeah, throw throw Where's the Friend's House if you choose to watch Mustang. Throw it on right after. Agreed. Okay, this is a big daddy for both of us, this next one. Um, and who we got a story to go with it too. We went to our favorite place, Metro Cinema, because they were screening... The 1974 horror film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was directed by Toby Hooper, written by Kim Henkel and Toby Hooper. And it stars Marilyn Burns as Sally, Edwin Neal as the hitchhiker, Alan Danziger as Jerry, Paul A. Partin as Franklin, William Vale as Kirk, Terry McMinn as Pam, uh, and Gunnar Hansen as Dirty Boy himself, Leatherface. Dirty. He's nasty. Ah. Um, synopsis. Five friends head out to rural Texas to visit the grave of a grandfather. 
On the way, they stumble across what appears to be a deserted house, only to discover something sinister within, something armed with a chainsaw. Ooh. Okay. This is one of our all-time faves. A Halloween staple in May. Uh, and this is us seeing it at Metro for the second time. We saw it for the first time in the theater at Metro pre-pandemic. Um, it was one of the loudest theater experiences that I'll never forget the first time that we saw it. Uh, it kind of repeated the second time, too. Um, but let's get into it. What do you think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre? So like you said, it is one of my favorite and your favorite movies of all time, independently and together. Interestingly, we haven't watched this since 2021. I think we watch it a little bit more frequently than that. Well, it is a Halloween staple. I feel like it's a really good summer horror movie just yes. to evoke that feeling of stifling heat. Yes. That the film depicts so well. I want to start with um, if we have recollections of the first time we ever saw it. Yeah, we kind of we kind of started talking about this the other day after we watched this. Um, and for me... I don't have vivid memories of watching it for, for the first time, but I remember I feel it was once I was well into me going to like HMV RIP and picking up movies for myself that I wanted to see. Like I would just buy stuff willy nilly, even if I hadn't seen it. And they had a steel book version of this movie that I bought and then I took home. And I think I just watched it by myself. Uh, and I remember it being like similar to when I watched the first Evil Dead, like this movie kind of fucked me up a little bit. Yeah, it it would. Because, um, yeah, I would have been watching this in like my very early teens, if not tweens. Uh, but at the same time, it's one of those things where like it fucked me up, but I really loved it. There's something around this area, this era of films, like in the 70s slash early 80s, where they just had a lock on stuff that could really fuck me up. And but I still really love and it has it, it stands the test of time really well. I'm thinking of something like this, something like Carrie, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, John Carpenter's Halloween. Like there's something around this era where they just it, it was just firing on all cylinders. It was really great. What about you? Your first time seeing it? So I have a very distinct memory of it. Um, my dad liked this movie. One of those moments where I really wish he was alive so I could mm -hmm. hear the story of the first time he saw it. I'm curious if it was in the theater. Mm -hmm. And he, my parents had recently divorced the year before the first time I saw this. Um, and so I was spending a little bit more time kind of one-on-one -on -one with my dad and he was trying to like find ways to connect, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and this was kind of the point in my life where he and I started watching a lot of horror movies together. So he was taking me and my stepsister. We were the same. We are the same age. We're the same age then too to see the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. In the theater. And true to myself now, I, at the time, felt it was important to see the original first. So the night that we were going to see the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, my stepsister and I, not with my dad, went down to her room in their house, which was in a basement. She had a friggin' waterbed. Weird. Um, and we were watching a taped, like a videotaped off of Satellite. <laughs> VHS of the original Texas Chainsaw. But we didn't make it through the whole movie because my dad had taped over it with porn. <laughs> so. Great. Yep. <laughs> so that's <laughs> my first experience watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. Then we, and, and we didn't really, it was like 
I think it was porn. I don't know what it was. It was, I, I very distinctly remember there was like a woman who was topless, like with her arms out, walking around a pool. And then we just like shut it off really fast. We're like, we don't know what this is. <laughs> no, thank you. No, this thank isn't you. Texas Chainsaw Massacre anymore. Um, and then we went and saw the, the new one and it scared the absolute piss out of me. I remember like staring into my popcorn instead of at the screen because I was <sighs> so scared. But I like didn't want my dad to think I was scared because he was like taking me to this. Mm -hmm. I don't remember then when I watched the original in full for the first time, not mm -hmm. with like the cut off VHS version of it. <laughs> um, but I've seen it so many times since then. We've seen it so many times together. Mm -hmm. It's just an indelible part of my cinema love. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even just a favorite horror movie. It's a favorite movie. It's a favorite movie. I think it's an impeccable movie. And interestingly, based on like what we've already talked about today, it feels slow. It feels like slow cinema to me. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there's people who have never seen it, who watch it and are like, what the fuck? When are we going to get to the killing? Yeah. Because to me, it's more of an art house film than a slasher. And people talk about it as a quintessential slasher. And I'm like, that's Halloween. Halloween yeah. is a quintessential slasher. This is something else to yeah. me. Yeah. I, I feel like when you actually watch this movie and are looking for these things, it subverts all of the things you kind of associate with this movie. Like, it kind of has that saw one factor of you think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even the title insinuates you're going to see a lot of blood and you're going to see a lot of gore. There is not really any, there's not a lot of that in this. Like I, I would compare it to saw one of like, it's not that I think there's less. Yeah. than yeah. saw because this is hilarious to think about. Toby Hooper thought he could get a PG rating for this. <laughs> <laughs> that is wishful thinking. And because of that, not only did he do what we're seeing with um, and what you're speaking to with keeping the violence off screen, mm -hmm. but he also didn't have swearing mm -hmm. and he also didn't have nudity. Yeah. So he was attempting to get a lower rating by not doing any of those things, which also make it feel not like a quintessential slasher. Like it's, it's a very make it for the youths. <laughs> he was making it for the, for the youths. So he was attempting to get a PG rating and they originally wanted to rate it X checks out <laughs> there's no nudity very mild language and all of the violence is off screen mm -hmm. but it is horrifying this film is horrifying yeah because it captures the visceral human terror that you would experience in the situation as our protagonist it is that's that's a perfect way to describe it it is so visceral and the set design is disgusting disgustingly amazing but disgusting that house that the Leatherface family lives in is horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's also fun watching this after having seen um, Pearl and X so many times recently because you really see the homage even in the design of the house. Oh, yeah. Like the the way the shot when any of them are coming through the front door feels so mirrored in the front entrance to the house from Pearl and X. Well, and like, and like that's the thing that makes it homage worthy is that, and that makes it feel more art house is that it's not like they're just making slumber party massacre. There's, which was fun. Uh, totally not knocking that shit. Cause that was great. But like there was a level of craft that they wanted to elevate in this film. When he did, Toby Hooper did a couple of really intentional things 
to create that experience of viscera. So one was um, he had a kind of set frame rate for or like frame number of frames per scene. But then preceding a violent scene, he would cut them. So all of a sudden it'd be like, cut, cut, cut. Like it'd be really fast. And we've been used to these longer scenes. Yeah. And so it feels like an assault, right? Yes. Um, a visual, a visual like aggression. Mm-hmm. The other thing he did um, was he, this is definitely feels very true. Um, he would be looking at something on the left side of the screen and then cut to Leatherface on the right side of the screen, mm-hmm. like very fast. You're like, whoa, like it feels like he came out of nowhere. So he had these like very intentional techniques and yet they don't feel like jump scares. They feel like intentional cinematic techniques to create feelings within the viewer. Oh yeah. And it's, it's so, it's so, it's so effective. It's, it's so well, there's so many moments in this movie. I've seen it so many times and I know that they're coming. They still give me goosies. And seeing it in the theater where it's like just overwhelms your senses. I found myself like jumping, like start, start, start it startling more than once Mm -hmm. in ways that I haven't for this film for a long time. The first kill. First time we see Leatherface. Got me so much this time. And I've seen this movie dozens of times. It's, it's iconic and it's not the music sting that happens is after the kind of the big moment. And it is one of the most effective and and terrifying music stings because it's so subtle. It's not meant to scare you, but it's just like we've entered the next stage of the movie where things are really ramping up and the stakes have ratcheted up as well. It's inc- it's incredible. The other thing I want I want to say too is um. The thing that it I feel makes this movie really effective and probably made it even more effective when it first came out in 74 is the intro to the movie. So they have this text on screen crawl preamble that sets this up as if it is real, that what you're yeah. about to see is real, even though it is very much not documentary style. But it sets you up to be like, oh my God, what's going to happen to these people? And then the opening credits are so creepy. And the sound design in it? It's iconic. They've u- they used it in the trailer for the the re-release or the uh the remake that you that you mentioned. It's very again viscerally upsetting. Like it just does something inside of your body where you're like, "Uh-uh." Yeah. The sound, it's supposed the sound to very- it's supposed to evoke the swinging of a slaughterhouse door. Oh, really? Mhm. And a camera at the same time. The sound design is very good because it's it does such a good job of even the sounds of flies just evoke this sense of gross and yucky (laughs) and gross and yucky and (laughs) and and it 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 puts you in a state like there's something that humans I feel like we associate with certain sounds and. They're very good at that throughout this film. And we're on a roll, three for three. This has another great ending and probably one of my favorite endings of all time. 
Yeah, this may be my favorite ending in a film of all time, yeah. although it's deeply upsetting. Yeah. Um, as being dedicated in our regular episodes to being spoiler free, we won't get into it specifically, but it is both gorgeous and upsetting and just like so many complicated things at once. Mm-hmm. And seeing that ending in the theater makes going to the theater worth it, even when there's dingbats in the theater, mm-hmm. which inevitably when you go to see an older horror film, and I'm sure this isn't just specific to Edmonton, there are people who have never seen it before and they just find it cheesy. And then they just laugh or they talk throughout it or they just don't like it. They have no patience for it. Yeah. Um, but that ending... It, I will go see this every time Metro offers it yeah. because it is an experience to see that ending in the theater. The cacophony of emotion and sound and sensory overwhelm yeah. is unlike many things that I've seen. And yeah, seeing it in the theater, it you can tell that the intention was to overwhelm the viewer, both emotionally and sensorily. And then when it cuts to black, you're just left sitting there. I <laughs> can't imagine seeing this in 1974 in the theater. It would have fucked me up. Oh, yeah. I think he would just be... Dead. Hollowed, yeah, hollowed by this mm. because it is such a nihilistic movie. Like, even where there is some semblance of hope, it's not a very hopeful hope. And... You know, I wrote about this in my review on Letterboxd, so I won't get into it too much, but Alberta's feeling pretty hopeless right now, the province in Canada that we live in, since I know we have some people who listen to us from other countries. And and bless your hearts. Thank you so much for listening. And I mean, I know we have some people who listen to us in Australia. Hi, Australia. Um, they've been through this with wildfires as well. Mm-hmm. But we are in the midst of ravaging wildfires. Um, it has been... Air quality index in all in Edmonton where we are has been um, as high as it can go for days now. Yeah, we, we were seeing yesterday that to spend half an hour outside breathing in the smoke is the equivalent of smoking half a pack of cigarettes. That's what one thing I saw on the internet said. Uh, I, I don't believe, know the science behind but it, but I believe everything on the internet. So. I also believe everything on the internet. But I've just been, you know, we also have a we have an election coming up, and it feels like a pretty dire election. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a reminder to anyone from Alberta who's listening that right now when this episode drops, you can go vote in the advanced polls. Yeah. Um, and then if you don't vote in the advanced polls, which we highly recommend you do, it's so much faster. Oh yeah. It is a, a, a it's a hack, even though it is a known thing to do. It is a hack. We always do it. It saves you so much time. Um, but if you don't vote in the advanced polls, please vote in the following days in the regular election because we need a change in Alberta. And we need it badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and this smoke and evacuations and you just look outside and it looks apocalyptic. It's so smoky you can't see when you're driving. Um, it feels like the cruelest symbolic representation of our political landscape right now. Mm. And watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre while feeling those things about where we are right now in our province. And you can literally smell the wildfire smoke in the theater 
as you're watching it mm-hmm. felt very particular. Like yeah. I won't forget this particular experience of seeing it, which maybe should bring us to the story. Yeah. Kick us off. Um, so one of our favorite things about Metro, our favorite theater, our favorite place in the world is that unlike Cineplexes and other chain theaters, these are carefully curated films. They do, um, you can apply to have a curation. They do special curations. They do staff picks. They do board picks. They do themed things um, around pride, around, you know, they do Die Hard at Christmas. They have excellent Halloween programming. Not to sound cheesy, but it is curated by the community for the community. I think that might be their tagline. <laughs> Not cheesy at all. It is just what it is. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's it's amazing. And um, one of the things they often do for these curated events is they have speakers beforehand. Um, if you listen to our episode on the trial, you know that we fucking loved having a university lecture <laughs> before watching the adaptation of Kafka's The Trial. Like, we loved that. Mm-hmm. So it's one of our favorite parts about this. And, you know, we, we've been... I think it was Suspiria where we went with our friends and they were like, let's get this show on the road. But they whispered it under their breath to, to us. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yes, degrees of how much people like this vary. But I think in general, people know that and should know that at these viewings, people often speak. Yeah. That Metro often has pre-show speakers or pre-show things going on. So this particular show was a board pick by board member Sylvia Douglas Um, and they were giving, uh, pre-show kind of both personal and academic speaking to like the significance of the film that I was really engaged in. Like I was just like nodding my head vigorously along and some quotes from, uh, books that were just like about Texas Chainsaw Massacre that were really fascinating. And I love how these pre-show speakings can like help frame the way we're going to watch the film. Um, I particularly loved the speaker who curated slowed down cinema. Mm-hmm. We saw two of the four that's where taste of cherry was playing. We didn't get a chance to go, but I loved that speaking and how it helped me like enter the film. Yeah. It's kind of like credits at the end of a film. It just like lets you kind of sit down and get ready for the movie. So it's wonderful pre-show speaking is going on. And in the midst of it, someone yells incredibly loudly and obnoxiously roll the film. Yeah. I don't, I don't think my heart could have sunk any lower. Um, I felt such disappointment in like our community. Yeah. Because for me, um, I mean, I, I, I've learned that it is a part of ADHD, but when people, when anything loud or abrupt or <laughs> overly obnoxious happens in public, I'm very, I, I get very withdrawn And I feel very icky inside my body. And I feel like in that moment, that person yelling, roll the film, that person is a representation of the audience of which we are a part of. Mm -hmm. So that person yelling that can encompass the feeling that all of us are having, even though that is not the case. Yeah. And that's very hard for me and made me very, very upset. Yeah. And I thought uh, Sylvia handled it really well because they said, dude, come on. I have like five minutes like um, or something to that effect. And I was like, well, great way to just like let that person know that's not cool and continue on. I will mention too, nobody hopped on that person's bandwagon. No. Like they yelled that and 
this the, the whole theater was silent. Like nobody, yeah. hop, nobody I mean, was rah rah about that. Speaking to a couple episodes ago, we talked about an experience that some of our friends had at John Wick, where like other people started like getting mad in response. That didn't happen either, and I think that's a good thing that it didn't all of a sudden turn into chaos in the theater with people yelling, "That's rude!" Like I think the silence of the rest of us spoke what needed to be said and gave Sylvia the chance to be the one to be like not cool, yeah, and then just continue on. So that happened. That was disappointing. But then we watched the movie. And then, you know, we have quite a few um, Edmonton letterboxed people that we've connected with who we've never met in real life, but we go to a lot of the same movies as. Mm-hmm. And almost all of us spoke to how, like, we didn't like that. We didn't like that that person said that. Yeah. Then Sylvia, who we've since connected with and seems like the raddest person, yeah, um, wrote a blog post and I want to read part of it. Yeah. If that's okay. Also on the blog post, cause I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a really excellent post. And we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, they're, they're speaking from before the show is on there in full. So if you want to hear what they had to say about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I highly recommend, especially if you've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, click the link in the show notes. So this is from Sylvia Douglas's blog. So quote, Since 2009, I have been attending Metro Cinema screenings, initially at Zeidler Hall, then at the historic Gurnow, when Metro moved in 2011. I attend screenings at the cinema about two to three times a month, picking for Metro's impressive curation of new indie films, classics, and art house cult films, documentaries, and even live performances. I've been a volunteer, a staff member, film festival coordinator, a guest curator, and I've had two of my own short films screened at Metro. Now I am a member of the board of directors with a stellar group of people that love film, art, storytelling, and community. Last night, it was my turn to pick a film to screen in the series of staff and board member picks. I was thrilled that my number one pick was available, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, directed by Toby Hooper and released in 1974. I prepared an introduction for the pre-show talk. Getting up on the Garneau Theater stage never gets less nerve-wracking, no matter how many times I have done it. The glowing footlights, beams of light from the projector, and unreadable faces in the dim auditorium all make it a surreal experience. I decided to address the approximately 150 people in the crowd with more context about the film and why I chose it. Pre-show talks, performances, or Q&As that follow a screening are part of what make Metro Cinema so valuable. It's not just about the famous or infamous films on the screens. Metro gives us the platform to discuss and explore these works as they relate to ourselves and our communities. When I said the words, end quote, someone yelled from the darkened balcony, roll the film. I am not a public speaker, and I've never been heckled before. It feels awful. I can't remember my exact response, but it was something like, dude, come on, five minutes. And then I finished my final paragraph, and then there was applause in anticipation of the film we all gathered to see. A Metro staff person apologized for the heckler, saying I didn't deserve that, and a kind person seated in front of me thanked me for the introduction, and that was a great solve on the situation. Luckily, the film is an assault on the senses, so it's hard to let one's mind linger on anything other than the menace in front of you. Seeing Chainsaw on the big screen with an audience was everything. You could feel the tension in the room of transfixed filmgoers. This masterpiece from 1974 still commands an audience, and the film's finale is just so gutting. Astounding to see it in the cinema. Afterward, in the lobby, the same staff member approached me to let me know that the heckler wanted to apologize if I felt comfortable confronting them. I immediately felt a wave of relief with even this small effort the person took to reach out. They expressed regret for their actions and offered a sincere apology, and I accepted with appreciation. I asked if they enjoyed the movie, and both them and their friend, who had never seen it before, had really enjoyed it. I shook their hand, and we went on our ways. I had a couple of really great conversations with other attendees. Again, part of why I love Metro Cinema is sharing these film experiences with others and hearing how they engaged with the film. Even spoke to an inspiring film, aspiring filmmaker, which makes me so happy to hear. The next thing I experienced was the wave of Edmonton Letterbox users that loved seeing Texas Chainsaw at, the, at Metro that evening. Reading their in-depth reviews that offered even more perspectives on the film and how it lands in 2023, it was tremendous to see the thoughtful discourse. 
With my whole horror-loving heart, I appreciated the shout-outs and support reviewers gave to my pre-show talk. The irony of invoking how horror can help externalize anxieties only to be heckled from beyond the stage was not how I expected the evening to go. I knew, because I have been told, that not everyone enjoys the same type of art or film discussion that I do and that different people get different things from their film-going experiences. I don't want or need to change anyone's mind about that, but at the end of the day, a community space needs to be held for everyone with respect and kindness. That includes space for someone to mess up, recognize it, apologize, and be welcomed back. Very well written. Yeah, it's very... I also appreciated that Sylvia kind of reached out to commented on letterbox users who spoke about it to let us know that the person had apologized because also brought me some relief to hear that and i think that final point of like a space of respect and kindness means allowing people to amend and amend (laughs) um and not feel like they can never come back here yeah i mean admittedly my i wrote my review and mentioned it and I was I was still seeing red at from the that experience, and I I I was very I don't know I was very aggressive and just very dismissive of that person, like saying things like they should never leave their house again, <laughs> like very overly Elliot. dramatic. Um, but then like reading that and hearing from Sylvia that, you know that person did apologize and then reading that blog and they're right. We have to allow people to make mistakes and to fail and to have the opportunity to apologize and make amends for those things. Um, and I, I amended my review. Like I, I still express my frustration and that that person needs to do better and be thoughtful about what, they, what they, what they, what they do with their actions. Um, and to think about the spaces that they're in and the people around them. And I, I just, I, I found myself really reflective of that and the importance of, of giving people the opportunity to do those things. And I'm really grateful that that person did reach out to Sylvia and extended their apologies. And they were able to have a bit of a dialogue about the film at the end of it all as well, because mm-hmm. that's what the whole thing was about. It was about bringing people together to watch this, this thing that we were all into. Yeah, it was it was a very emotional experience that that whole that whole thing because I we say it all the time. Metro is our favorite place in the world. In your review, you called it our a sanctuary, sanctuary. Yeah. and yeah, like it's different spaces are that for different people, and I think the theater broadly, like cinema broadly, is that for us, but Metro specifically is like our space that feels holy and that felt like a violation of that and I think that's why I get so particularly incensed when the audience is disrespectful at Metro as part of me feels like this isn't Metro's audience like how did you get in here (laughs) how were you allowed past the gates yeah um because it's such a space of comfort and safety to me that theater those seats the people who work there are so, so lovely. The people who volunteer there, everyone involved in it makes this space that means so much to us. And moments like that feel really, feel more intense to me than when it happens at a Cineplex. And yeah, I am glad to have heard the whole story of it and really thankful that Sylvia shared that so that we could all 
reflect on the part we play in that too and and have some hope after such a hopeless movie yeah no you you said that really well um yeah like not to get hammy about it but movie theaters specifically metro cinema like that's our church yeah that's that's where we go to be amongst other people that love and worship movies as much as we do and we have that mutual respect and love and like through do we were talking about this the other day through doing the podcast and having letterboxd and having more conversations about movies has introduced us to so many more people that are involved in the movie community around edmonton and hearing from them and talking with them and going to see movies with some of them has been just such a rewarding experience for us um so when that's interrupted or disrespected hits me very emotionally. It feels like a violation of like our core values too. So yeah, it was, it was wild. It was a wild, wild ride. Um, Always though, such an interesting and, and valuable thing for me to have a particular experience with a movie I've seen so many times because there's been many times we've just watched this in our basement that all kind of blend together. But this particular viewing both the uncomfortability of it and and the things that were really just resonant for us personally with watching the movie. We won't forget that. Yeah. Big time. And then, yeah, also just like making that connection with Sylvia at the end of it all. Like so many things had to align and happen for us to even connect one-on-one with them. So it's, there's some good that came out of the whole thing. It's really lovely. Okay. Thank you for listening to our whole Texas Chainsaw Massacre story. At some point, we'll <laughs> likely do a deep dive. There are things I wanted to say that I'm cutting for time. Yes. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a comforting connection to the acknowledgement that this world is mad and cruel. Ooh, yeah. Um, made me feel sickly in love with this grotesque gem. Okay. Then we came back home. and had another mystery movie pick from yours truly. So I wanted to revisit the 2008 comedy drama romance Forgetting Sarah Marshall. It was directed by Nicholas Stoller and written by one of our favorite people in Hollywood, Jason Segel. It stars Kristen Bell as Sarah Marshall, Jason Segel as Peter Bretter, Paul Rudd as Chuck, Mila Kunis as Rachel Jensen, Russell Brand as Aldous Snow, and Bill Hader as Brian Bretter. Synopsis. Devastated, Peter takes a Hawaiian vacation in order to deal with the recent breakup of his TV star girlfriend, Sarah. Little does he know, Sarah's traveling to the same resort as her ex, and she's bringing along her new boyfriend. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, We have some history with this movie, but let's get into it. What do you think of Forgetting Sarah Marshall? So I think it's interesting and and some appropriate context is you've been sick this week. Yes. Um, you're still currently sick. So between you being sick and it being terrible outside, so we can't even get out for a walk. And then we're also not seeing anybody because we still believe that it is kind and important to exercise caution when you're not feeling well, regardless of why you're not feeling well, Mm -hmm. so you don't make other people sick. Um, This was your choice when you were in like the worst day of feeling sick. Yeah. I just wanted something funny and easy and familiar. So this seemed to be like a comfort to you. Yeah. And like, I figured it was 
good to pick it for those reasons, but also we haven't watched it in some time and I was curious to revisit it. Yes, we have revisited some of the films that are part of this time, specifically Apatow films and been like, oh, damn, we don't like them anymore, including I Love You, Man, um, which yeah. I believe was also directed by Nicholas Stoller. Hmm, I don't know about that. I don't know about that either. Um, this was during the time where I felt like every movie, this was in like the 2000s um, and like the like early 2010s. I feel like there was a lot of movies coming out that in the trailers and on the posters, it was a lot of from the guys that brought you 40 year old version and knocked up a lot of stuff from the guys that brought you language in yeah. these kinds Nicholas of Nicholas Stoller did not direct I Love You Man. It was, uh, did Muppets movie? <laughs> John Hamburg has done nothing else that we like. Um, so yeah, a little nervous to to revisit this because we've revisited a couple other ones that we used to like and been like, not only do we not like them, we actively dislike them. Mm -hmm. This was one of my favorite movies period when I was like a young adult. This came out when we were in grade 12. Mm -hmm. Um, and was, you know, of all of those Apatow and Apatow adjacent films, this was my favorite. Revisiting it now, it is so not crude like those are. No. It's uh it's definitely not as punched down shock humor as many of those Apatow crew films that were coming out around this time. Yeah, it has some it has its moments and I think it's a product of its time. Mm -hmm. But by and large it's you know, the 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 breath I was withholding and, and worrying that it would just be so disappointing, it wasn't. Yeah. Which is good. Well, and I think that that's a testament to Jason Siegel, who wrote this film, is the lead in this film, um, and that I don't think that Jason Siegel is a callous person. Yeah. And, you know, I we kind of followed him through his journey and his career, um, and he's definitely had ups and downs on the personal side of things outside of film and TV. Um, but it, he's, he doesn't strike me as like a punch down shock humor person. And yeah. I feel like that's why this one feels a lot lighter on that kind of humor. Yeah. The mo most recent projects that he's been involved in are all really like emphasis on like the wonder of human connection and how we, survive through the difficulty of the world um and yeah. and come at it through a place of like wonder and kindness and because this is written by him i think that even comes through here so yeah some of it doesn't age particularly well there was a brief period of time where i really liked russell brand and he's like not cool so i don't know why i did like i read his memoir and his even in his memoir he's not cool mm -hmm. um but I also had a period of time where I was like, everything British is cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, very nice to know that I still do love Jason Siegel, Kristen Bell, Paul Rudd, Bill Hader, right? Like mm -hmm. all of those people I still think are aces. And this movie still like is a really good, just like comfort movie, like an easy movie that I know all the beats of and it's just funny and sweet. Yeah. Like, um, do you, would you say that uh, you still regard it as one of your favorite comedies? No. No? No. Yeah. But it is comforting. Yeah. I can see, like, I was thinking, it's maybe been, I don't know, five-ish 
years that since we watched it, I can see myself waiting longer until yeah. wanting to rewatch it. Yeah, it was like a nice, oh, I remember really loving this movie and I'm glad it isn't as, I'm glad it has aged better than I thought it would have. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't like, whoa, this is the best comedy has to offer. Yeah. Like the bits I remember being funny are They're still funny. Are still funny. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of quotable stuff that we still kind of quote to each other. It's also, you know, at the end of the day, it's a it's a romance film and it's a pretty by the numbers romance film. Mm-hmm. And that's just unlike Texas Chainsaw, unlike Where's the Friend's House, unlike some things we're going to talk about after this. There's nothing new I get from watching it. Yeah. It offers me nothing new. And those just aren't the movies that are in the category of favorite for me. Yeah. Can they be in the category of comfort or nostalgia? Absolutely. Yeah. Fun, sure, but favorite, no. You want to you want to talk about something different and unique and great that Jason Siegel's been a part of? Watch Dispa- watch the show Dispatches from Elsewhere. Yeah. Uh it is incredible really like to rewatch it sometime soon, but it is one of the most unique shows that I've seen. Um, and there's just some lovely acting in it. And in terms of like a favorite comedy, the good place is one of my favorite pieces of media of all time. Yeah. Um, starring Kristen Bell and it is hilarious and resonant and heartbreaking and human. It's amazing. Yeah. And now some, uh, things about this movie. Did you know that when they were promoting it, they had Skywriters uh, fly over major, major cities and write, I hate you, Sarah Marshall? <laughs> and some the, women uh, named Sarah Marshall did not like that. The, that's great. <laughs> but the advertiser in me loves that's that. That's very clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, this is the slightest of spoilers. There is a montage where Jason Siegel's character, Peter, is getting drunk and starts um, impersonating the women from sex in the city. Mm-hmm. Cynthia Nixon is in the scene. What? Yeah. She's like in the bar behind him. That's really funny. Yeah. It's really, really funny. I also have a addition to do we find this trivia interesting or not? If you uh, would like. Yes, let's do it. Okay. Elliot Cuss, do you find this interesting? Jason Siegel and Paul Rudd co-starred in I love you, man. In both movies, the characters eat tacos together. Interesting. All right. So we'll make that 77 out of 148. I I already I already knew that, but still. <laughs> Worth your time reading that? Love tacos. That. Yeah, yeah. This movie has some just excellent bits. It just like lines that we quote all the time. Um the musical that Peter is involved in is brilliant. Aces. Paul Rudd's lines are amazing. Bill Hader's lines are amazing. There is some like nasty women competing with other women stuff in it that I don't love. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some unnecessary nudity that I, I don't love. Yeah. Just within like what the, like what the film's about, it doesn't need it. And some B lines that I, I think I thought were really funny back in the day, like Jack McBrayers, which now I'm like, mm, we've got some issues with consent here, mm-hmm. but it's still pretty, pretty comforting. Yeah. Yeah, there there's there's stuff to enjoy here. There's stuff to enjoy here, but if you're, you know, if you like Kristen Bell, you like Jason Siegel, you like Paul Rudd, you like Bill Hader, I think 
seeing how they've grown and the films they've made since then, maybe not Paul Rudd, but <laughs> Bill Hader, people love Barry. It's not really my thing, but I know that it's like amazing. Um, Jason Siegel dispatches from elsewhere is phenomenal. Shrinking's Shrinking great. was, was great. It's, it's easy, but it's yeah. good. And the good place is one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. So, yeah, you want something that fucking rocks and then also sticks the landing. Watch the good place. My God. Um, all right. Great reflection, babe. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a familiar comfort, even as I recognize I've grown past some of its humor. Yeah. You? Uh, it made me feel content that it isn't as good as I once thought it was. And that's okay. Kylie's about to take us to the room. The panic room. <laughs> yes. Speaking of movies that aren't as good as we once thought they were. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to spoiler alert. Panic room is not as good as, as it we was once thought it was <laughs> in 2002. <laughs> All right. I picked panic room 2002 crime drama thriller directed by David Fincher written by David Kopp. It stars Jodie Foster as Meg Altman, Kristen Stewart as Sarah Altman, Forrest Whitaker as Burnham. Altman. not though. Oh. <laughs> Dwight Yoakam as Raul feels maybe inappropriate um, and the master of Ick, do not like him himself, Jared Leto as Junior. Yuck. Patrick Bacow as Stephen Ullman. Synopsis, a divorced woman and her diabetic daughter. <laughs> <laughs> That's good alliteration. <laughs> yeah. Divorced diabetic daughter. Woo! The synopsis writer. Okay, let me take that again. A divorced woman and her diabetic daughter take refuge in their newly purchased house's safe when three men break in searching for a missing fortune. What do you think of Panic Room? Uh, I mean, great tie into our deep dive. Got a little Jody in there. Jody Foster's great. She's great in this. She's great in The Silence of the Lambs. Go listen to our deep dive with Devin. Um, That's alliteration. Daddy deep dive with Devin. Nice. Um, yeah, I loved this movie when it came out in 2002. I was a little fresh-faced 12-year-old, 13-year-old. <laughs> It is perfect for a 12-year-old. 100%. Um, I, I mean, it was, I remember thinking it was so stylish and thrilling. Now, it's all right. You don't um, think it's stylish anymore? Uh, like, I mean, okay. It's very rooted in the 2000s. Yeah. As Jody's glasses can confirm in this film. Yes. Um, Case two's just a little baby. Just a little nugget. Um, okay. So, Jodie Foster incredible Kristen Stewart is really great in this and she continues to just get being more and more great and I also think Forrest Whitaker is awesome in this movie anytime they're on screen I'm glued yeah to whatever they're doing um and I also you you know this is not connected to our silence of the lambs deep dive but growing up when I first saw this Raul kind of gave me Buffalo Bill vibes a little bit oh interesting um and maybe I'm making that connection just because of jo of Jody but I remember just thinking like those were the vibes. Those were the creepy vibes that I got from Raul. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember seeing this for the first time, but I remember owning it on DVD right when we like first got a DVD player. Like this was an early one that we owned. Um, and I mean, watching it this time, there are some badass moments that I've forgotten about that got like the blood pumping and got me excited. I think both of us were like, oh, right, this is coming. Um, so yeah, it was... It was, it was fun. Yeah, I mean, I really liked it 
I think I was also watching it when I was like 12, 13, because I, I still to this day love a closed circuit film. Mm-hmm. You know, having not seen a lot of films that do this, but better. And we were just talking about this with the butterfly effect. It's a movie you and I both really liked when we were young mm-hmm. and it's on Netflix right now. And we were both like, I bet it's terrible. Yeah. I bet it's just awful. But it was the first time we saw something that had elements that we're going to go on to see in other films done better. Now, it's a little bit disappointing because we like a lot of David Fincher's films. And I don't think this is a bad movie. I just think in the Fincher catalog, it's pretty mid. Yes, mid. But this was probably the first Fincher film I saw. Probably right. Probably saw seven very shortly after that. And then that became one that I watched all the time. Um, Far be it from me to think that I have any prowess in filmmaking. But I think less emphasis on the guys who break in and shave half an hour off the movie and it'd be a better movie. Like, I don't think I need all of their backstory. Well, it's just like, how much time do we really want to spend in the, in a small room with Jody and Kristen? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. How much time do I want to spend with Jared Leto in cornrows? <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I'm happy to spend time with Forrest Whitaker Cause like the moment he's introduced and there's that shot of him looking at a nightlight and just the expression on his face conveys everything you kind of need to know about his character, I feel. And that's really, that's really good. But yeah, I know I agree. I, th- I feel like there is a bit of trimming that could have happened. I also wish it ended before the final scene. Yeah. The- I think it has what could be a phenomenal ending and then, it feels like one of those test audiences didn't like it. So we tacked this onto the end. Yeah, the, the, the final scene. Don't need it. It's just. It's hammy. It's super hammy. Speaking of hammy, you once saw this movie as stylish. Do you now think Panic Room is stylish? Okay. So David Fincher wanted to be Mr. Fancy Pants with the camera work in this one, <laughs> which I I do respect because yeah. there's a oneer in this that is that I think is really impressive still. Um, and you know I think having that freedom to play within what's new in the moment is, is worthwhile. I just think sometimes that means it's not going to age well. Sometimes I, it means you're going to be seen as the originator of something new, and sometimes it means you're going to look hammy cheesy in ten years. That's just it. That is definitely the risk that you run. Um, and the the wonder is really impressive, and it does incorporate elements of CGI. CGI in 2002, as you can imagine, is not super, super tight. But I feel like, and this is just me saying, I, <laughs> is I feel like they should have left it at that because some of the CGI and the twisty turnies that happen later in the film don't stand the test of time as well. Um, and that, and those moments pulled me out of it more than that one. What day. I'm hearing from both of us is Fincher should have asked us to edit the film. Yeah. Cause, uh, he obviously doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> Get your time turner. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's perfect. It's perfectly fine. I was, I picked this and I was really excited by it. And then when I looked at what the people I follow on Letterboxd have rated it, I was like, oh no. And then I was like, nah, I'm still going to love it. And then I was like, it's fine. It is fine. It's fine. It's, it's, it's worth a watch. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Both Kristen Stewart, David Fincher, 
and Jodie Foster both was the wrong word to use there. They've done better things. Yeah. How did Panic Room make you feel? Um, happy to revisit anything with Jodie, but I'm happy to put this one on the shelf <laughs> for the rest of time. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel surprised by how much less I like it now. <laughs> It's always a disappointment when you're like, wow, 12-year-old me didn't have great taste in movies or just movies. You know, this was good in 2002, and it's just not that good now. I like your use of the word surprise, where you get to the end of the film like, oh, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, That sounds like something my mom would do. Speaking of moms. Ooh, okay. Last film of the week. Uh, another mystery movie pick from yours truly. I chose to revisit the 2017 comedy drama Lady Bird. It was written and directed by one of the goats, Greta Gerwig. There's some triple alliteration for you. Uh, it stars Saoirse Ronan as Lady Bird McPherson, Laurie Metcalf as Marion McPherson, Tracy Letts as Larry McPherson, Lucas Hedges as Danny O'Neill, the boy himself, Timothy Chalamet as Kyle, and Beanie Feldstein as Julie. Synopsis. In 2002, an artistically inclined 17-year-old girl comes of age in Sacramento, California. <laughs> You made it sound like you had more to say than that. Um, that's great. That's it. That's a uh, delectably Greta Gerwig synopsis. Okay. What did you think of Lady Bird? I was excited to revisit this one. I was too. I um, I can't remember who I saw this in the theater with, but I swear I didn't see it for the first time with you. No, I feel like it was one of those things maybe where you saw it and you're like, oh, I got to go see this. Yeah. So I thought maybe I saw it with Ashley. I text her and she said, no, I watched it with my mom for the first time at home. And I was like, okay. And I was like, maybe, <laughs> maybe I saw it with my friend Jordan because we saw little women together. And she said, maybe, I don't remember. <laughs> but that feels right. So I'm going to say I saw it with Jordan. Right. And I think she's going to agree, even if she doesn't remember. <laughs> because it seems like a film we would have seen together. So you've seen it twice. I've seen it twice. And Both times in the theater. And then I think I liked it so much. I wanted you to go see it. I remember the first time I saw it feeling like this is one of my new favorite movies of all time. And then it didn't call me to revisit it as often as say, you know, we've watched After Sun, I think six times since we saw it in September. We saw Parasite three times in the theater. Yeah. And then probably would have seen it more if COVID hadn't happened. Yeah. Um, and then we have watched it more times at home. And I don't know what it is because in rewatching it, I, I really like it. I don't think it's one of my favorite movies of all time, but mm -hmm. I do really, really like it. Yeah. So Yeah, I, I agree. I only saw it the once with you in the theater, but I remember at the end of it also feeling like, oh, this was great. I loved watching this. This was such a great film. And then, yeah, not feeling, not feeling compelled to pick it up again, but still feeling okay with, yeah, I love that film. Yeah. And just holding that opinion. Yeah, because, I mean, it's so well written. Love Greta. I, you brought this up, and I didn't even think about this, that of the films Greta Gerwig has directed specifically, it's this, this, <laughs> this little indie A24 jam the period piece with little women and then she's making Barbie. Yeah. What an eclectic trilogy, non-associated trilogy. And yet they, yeah, they all like center experiences of women. Yeah. And I mean, with little women and Barbie, they also 
Little Women is such a classic. I think so many young girls get gifted it when they're little. I did. Mm. And then Barbie, obviously, so many young girls play with Barbies. Of course, other folks do as well, but it's just so associated with girlhood. She has a knack for it, for Mm -hmm. exploring that specific experience of girlhood and yet challenging it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the reasons I wonder if it's hard to revisit this is Lady Bird and Marion, her mother's relationship, feels like a hyperbolic version of my relationship with my mom. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you want to get into this, but we kind of watched this on a uh, a tough mom day for you. Yeah. Like, I, unintentionally, I had already picked this as my mystery movie pick, and then some tough mom stuff came up for you. And, and I mean, it was, it, it was tough in the way Lady Bird and Marion's is, where it's just like, ugh, my mom just says things. And I don't, think moms she, do. I don't think she realizes what she's saying. And if I told her that it upset me, she'd be like, well, I didn't mean it like that. Yeah. And then I would just be even more upset. And she just managed to insult both my hair and my house and within a minute of each other. <laughs> and yet she wouldn't understand herself as having done either of those things. Mm-hmm. And I asked you a couple of times while watching, I'm like, do you see my mom in Marion? Yeah. Not your mom. Your mom with your sister, though. Yes. Not your mom with you. Like that. Freaking moms, I tell you. Like, that's the thing is like, I think this movie is funny. And I think it is real and I think is relatable, but only relatable to a point for me as I've never been a teenage girl slash woman. Who has that kind of a relationship with their mother. And I don't think all girls and mothers have that relationship. No, I don't even know that I would say my sisters necessarily have that same degree of it as I have with my mom. But in our family, my mom and I had the most antagonism towards each other. And yet the thing that this movie does so well which the older I get, I think the more I will relate to this aspect of it is show that they are so similar. Because <laughs> yeah. the older I get, the more I'm like, fuck, I'm like my mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in and, 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 you know, in many ways we differ and then in many ways we're very similar. And I think that's what makes us so combustible at times. Mm. And there's some beautiful camera work and intentional parallel shots that make those connections in subtle and beautiful ways between mm-hmm. Marion and Lady Bird and how they are much more alike than maybe either of them wants to see at that current point in time. Yeah. Like I, I think that there's, there's also just like, you know, this parent thing that exists of parents don't want their kids. So, so often is the case parents don't want their kids to end up like them or make the same decisions and or mistakes that they might've made or what they consider to be mistakes that they made. Um, but inevitably some of those things parallel and it's unavoidable. Um, but there has to be this sense of being okay with that. And I feel like there's, there's a bit of that explored in this film. Um, very eloquently. Yeah. I think watching it now, I haven't seen it in six years and I only had seen it in the theater and I'm at a very different spot in my life. I was reflecting when I saw this, it came out in November 2017. I was two months into my first teaching job ever. Right. Very different spot in my life than I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, just also like where we were living and kind of where we were both at in terms of our careers and the, the age. I felt more where Lady Bird is by the end of the film. It felt closer to that than I feel now. Mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Um, 
I think that it is witty. Yes. And it's not, you know, I go back and I we, we rewatched Juno not that long ago and rewatching it, I was like, it's witty, but to a point of sometimes being obnoxious. Mm-hmm. This is just witty. Mm-hmm. It's just great dialogue. Uh, I think Beanie Feldstein rocks in it. Yeah. She's she's great. She's great in Booksmart, even with my some qualms about the film. It has nothing to do with her. And uh, we have another Paul Mescal connection. You ready? Yeah. So I was, you know, I was like, what's Beanie Feldstein up to now? I haven't seen her in a while. So in Lady Bird, they do a production of the Stephen Sondheim musical Merrily We Roll Along. Richard Linklater is making that film, Merrily We Roll Along. And it's going to star Paul Mescal as Franklin. That's who Lucas Hedges plays. Mm. Well, his character plays. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to have Beanie Feldstein and it's going to have Ben Platt and it's going to be shot periodically over the course of many years and will be released in 2040. <laughs> so it's like a boyhood type thing. Linklater loves a long game, you know? <laughs> but I'm like, what What are the odds that there's two mescal connections? Well, it's funny. Week? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a not... I'll make, I'm going to make a mescal-ish connect, <laughs> connection in that this is, a, this is another film this week that is semi-autobiographical. Yeah. Because I was reading uh, that, uh, like an interview with Greta Gerwig where she said in that, you know, while this isn't beat for beat exactly what happened to her in her younger years, she's pulling from some of the memories and some of the experiences that she had and bringing to this film very after Sunny. Yeah, so I have a quote from her where she calls it semi-autobiographical and says, quote, nothing in the movie literally happened in my life, but it has a core of truth that resonates with what I know. Yeah. And then that her goal was to have it feel like a memory. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it it does that so well. Yeah, it it does. And like what I think is interesting too, that I really it kind of blew my mind and continues to blow my mind when you said this, is that you kind of think of, Lady Bird as kind of the younger version of Francis Ha, the Francis yeah. Ha character uh, in a film directed by Noah Baumbach, but co-written by, by him and Greta Gerwig and starring Greta Gerwig. So you can totally see, you can make the connections if you look for it of how the character of Lady Bird turns into oh, Francis Ha, Francis potentially. Ha. Yeah. I think it's really exciting that Greta Gerwig has gone on and done such different films though. Like Little Women is very different. I think Barbie's going to be very different and it's my most anticipated movie of the year. She seems like she freaking rocks. Can I tell you some things that make me think she freaking rocks? Yes. Okay, so one is she wore a prom dress when she filmed the prom scenes. That's fun. That's mm-hmm. cool. She frequently drinks Diet Coke and eats Cheetos and her cast and crew call it the Greta. <laughs> She bans cell phones on her sets. Mm, Nice. And then this one is my favorite. She believes that people should stay for the credits. And she says, quote, it is a sign of respect to all those involved in the collaborative filmmaking process and also a meditative moment to sit through what you just heard and saw. Freaking. She's our kind of people. Yeah. That's what we're always saying. Love it. Greta's the goat. I think this movie is really special. I think it's an impressively amazing feature directorial from her. Mm -hmm. And I am so excited by anything that she puts out. She also seems very thoughtful. Like she has only made three films, one of which comes out 
right around my birthday this year and I'm just all in on her. Yeah. Anytime that her voice is a part of something, I always enjoy whatever that thing is in terms of her involvement. Uh, yeah. I I also feel like we might be remiss to not mention that Sersha is incredible in this movie. Oh yeah. She's, she's really great in everything I've seen her in, but I just love her in this. Um, yeah. And she, she was 23 when they filmed it, but she really does sell teenager. Yeah. Like there's definitely some things that maybe are a little bit hyperbolized with her character, but it feels so true to being a teenager <laughs> around that time. Yeah. And those moments where I'm like, well, she's acting a little dramatic. I'm like, but I did too. <laughs> like, yeah. So it, it really, there is something about, and I think when I saw Lady Bird for the first time and I was like, I just saw one of my favorite movies of all time. I think what I was connecting with is it felt true to my experience of being a teenager. And I think that right. was the first time and maybe still the only time mm -hmm. that a film has captured that. Like that is exactly what it felt like being a teenage girl for me, mm. which wouldn't be true for everyone. Mm -hmm. But that was the first time I had seen it and been like, wow, that's what it felt like. So when you watch mm. that, you're watching what it was like for me. I was weird and quirky and I would have done shit like writing the crushes I had on my wall. I didn't do that exactly, but I did versions of that. Mm -hmm. So the way that she says nothing in the movie literally happened, but it has a core of truth that resonates with what I know that feels true to me as well. Mm -hmm. Just like after sun, right? Where she says there's an emotional truth to it. After sun feels like an emotional truth for me as well. And so there's something very special about this movie, even though I'm not compelled to watch it all the time. Mm hmm. I'm so impressed with and thankful for that experience that feels true to me being captured on film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you can't discount that that is something special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Lady Bird, how did it make you feel? Made me feel a sorrowful nostalgia for my teen years spent in suburbia. Mm. You know, that sense of I'm glad I'm not there anymore but maybe I didn't hate it as much as I thought I did. Yeah. But at the time I really hated it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Um, reaffirmed that I am all in on Greta. All right. Let's talk about some dads. Dads of the week, baby. I feel like we had lots of options. We did. Yeah. Some weeks I'm like, I was, you know, really having to do some mental work to figure out the dads. And this week I was like, ah, I have so many choices. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'll kick things off. Uh, my bad dad nominee, I feel like there was, yeah, like you were saying, I feel like there was a lot of low-hanging fruit potential here, but I actually went with Burnham from Panic Room. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I wanted to kind of dig into the complexities of what could potentially make him the bad dad. Um, and I feel like such a big part of it is that he makes the wrong decisions in the name of love and uses his love and his care for his family or his daughter as the excuse for his wrongdoings or his wrong decisions. And he's willing to set aside his morals for financially bettering his family. Um, so, and he's selective about when he does that. And then in those moments, his kindness wavers mm -hmm. sometimes into danger in favor of his own gain. So like the fact that he can just hang up his morals in certain situations is kind of a scary thing for a dad. Because I feel like that's where it can lead to some really damaging stuff for, in this case, me, the child, 
And if this is my dad, I don't want him to be my dad. I don't want somebody that can just hang up the morals, put them to the side and make very, in some cases, dangerous decisions for his own personal gain, even though he says it's for all of us. <laughs> That's why I picked him. Who'd you pick? I picked Aldous Snow. Yeah, also <laughs> Icky Picky. <laughs> uh, he is pompous. He's self-serving. He is a liar. He acts gracious. Like he act, he puts on this persona of being all loving and all kindness and all empathy. And yet he is solely focused on his own needs. And he is the antithesis of this persona that he creates. And it feels like you can see that. And yet people get drawn into it anyway. He's disloyal. He's disloyal. <laughs> yeah. You could pick. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I feel like in my struggle, not in my struggle, but in my effort to put forth a complex bad dad that thinking about all this, it's like kind of close to home for me a little bit (laughs) Okay. (laughs) in that I don't want, I wouldn't want somebody like that at all. Yeah. It's going to be all this snow. Okay. (laughs) All the snow. Don't Don't be be our dad. dad. Step off, pee pee poo poo. I feel like we should have the same rad dad. I'm saying, I'm just saying. Okay. But who's your pick? You want to say it on the count of three? Okay. One, two, two three. three. Ahmed. Ahmed. Of course. Where's the friend's house protagonist, Ahmed? Tell me why. He has an innate sense of justice about like what's right in the world, and he will seek that out in like the name of what is good. He is kind and he is gentle and he's also accountable. Like I took this thing. So it's my responsibility to get it back. Um, Even if that means that there are things I have to sacrifice because I did something and now I have to rectify that. Mm -hmm. So I don't think sometimes I think we can get complicated when we say that like a dad, a rad dad is selfless because I don't necessarily think that being selfless is a good quality. I think being accountable is the like more meaningful version of that. Mm-hmm. Like I think you selfless can, can run the risk of having no boundaries and, and being kind to everyone else, but not yourself. And I think a rad dad knows how to be kind to themselves in the service of others. Mm. Um, yeah. What do you have to say? Yeah. I, I've, I mean, obviously I agree with all of that. Um, just kind of dialing it down. I, I just have, he's kind, he's caring, he's determined um, and willing to do the right thing and he knows right from wrong um, and on the opposite of you know what I was saying about uh, Burnham about him willing to set aside his morals or take take risks in a sort of selfish and um, potentially dangerous way um, Ahmed's willing to take risks to do what is right yeah um, and yeah he's just he's a little badass and yeah, he can, he can, but he's rate. a badass in the name of kindness. It's awesome. Yeah. He, he'd be, I mean, he'd be right at home, put him on the same pedestal as like Waymond Wayne. Yeah. Um, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. All right. Ahmed. Be our dad. dad. We're going to hit you with a rad wreck that we kind of teased last week, but we finally finished watching the new show Jury Duty um, and Obsessed obsessed it's very good it's just hilarious and 
you know, in keeping with this theme of kindness that's unlike The Office, which some of the people were involved in, which I struggle to revisit because I think it's very mean spirited. Mm -hmm. Jury duty is not. Mm -hmm. I'm still wrapping my mind around how I feel about the ethics of it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the show itself is so hilarious. And we've we've watched a lot of not a lot, but we've watched a handful of interviews with Ronald Gladden um, since then. So the conceit of jury duty is it is um, presented as a documentary about the jury duty process and everyone involved is an actor except for one person who thinks it is real. And that is the human being, Ronald Gladden. I think he's my hero. I think he could be Rad Dad of the Week. Honestly, <laughs> he's so awesome. Um, we watched it all on YouTube. It's available for free. Um yeah, on the all episodes you can stream, but it is now on Amazon Prime as well. We don't have Amazon Prime because we try not to do Amazon stuff. Um, highly recommend watching it. It's eight half hour episodes and it is hilarious and good hearted. Yeah. We'll put the link in the show notes to the YouTube. Check it out. Jury duty. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we drop a new episode every Thursday. You can follow us and slide into our DMS on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Uh, get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. Please check out our daddy deep dive with our good buddy, Devin. Uh, it was a really great conversation. And if you love silence of the lambs, definitely worth checking it out. Uh, and we would absolutely love you forever. If you'd share us with the, uh, with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these leather faces this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.